This morning's scripture is found in Matthew 6, 19 through 25. And the focus today will be on verse 25. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For there where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You may be seated. Good morning. Is anybody missing zero degrees yet? <laughs> you know, we, we do certainly live in a land of extremes. Uh, frankly, I'm better built for 40 below than I am for 100 degrees. Um, yet we will praise God for functional air conditioning and uh, trust that he can keep us cool as well as he keeps us warm all winter. Well, it is good to be back behind this pulpit again, uh, declaring the word of God to this congregation. I'm very thankful for the willingness of Brother Kent and Brother Clay to give me a chance to devote some time to other good and necessary things these past few weeks. Preaching every week, I'm sure you can understand, especially while holding a full-time job, can be exhausting. It doesn't leave a whole lot of time for home projects or other kind of things around the house or in other areas of life. I do praise God for this church. And I am thankful for the calling that God has placed on my life and the stewardship and ministry that He has entrusted to me here and I am also thankful for faithful brothers who care enough about me to realize that from time to time, I need some time to rest and are willing to step up and help serve this body. Even so, it doesn't take long for me to feel the draw, for me to feel the compelling draw back to the pulpit to preach the word of God. And I pray that God would grant me the grace to be able to do so in truth and in power this morning. So I ask you to join me in prayer. Father, we are wholly and completely dependent on you. Any thought that we stand on our own or care for ourselves is an illusion. We need you. Father, help us to trust in You. Help us to look to You. Help us to see clearly the order in this universe, our place in Your creation, and Your supremacy in all things. Father, forbid that I would speak anything that would point to anyone to anything other than Christ. For that you'd get the preacher out of the way, the message would be from you, and that hearts of your people would be changed, and those who do not yet believe would be brought to faith. We pray for miracles, Father, because our God works miracles. Be glorified by our worship this morning. Conform us to Christ. For your glory and for our good. Amen. Well, these past two weeks, we have been looking at the Christian's relationship to treasures of this world. We have been challenged to evaluate whether we are storing up treasures here and now on this earth, 
or we are storing up treasures in heaven. We have seen what the difference between the two says about our hearts. We have seen the kind of darkness that living for and obsessing over the riches of this earth can bring. We have seen a common theme in the teaching of Christ, in the direct relationship between the hope and light of a heart that is focused on Christ and the decay and the darkness of a heart that is set on the things of this world. Christ painted for us in this passage a picture that illuminates one of the great themes in all of Scripture. That is that men either look to God and give their service to God, or they will look to the things of this world and they will hate God. Scripture is full of examples, imagery, and teaching related to this theme. There are two types of people. There are two ways of living. There are two eternal destinies. A binary absolute may not be very popular these days, yet it remains the biblical reality, as I trust we will see as we continue this morning. Our passage this morning, we will be focusing on verse 24. Our passage this morning serves as an excellent bridge between the disciples' relationship to worldly possessions and riches and the coming command against anxiety. We'll actually see the rest of chapter 6 is devoted to Christ commanding his disciples not to be consumed with anxiety, not to be anxious. This passage, as I said, is the bridge between the two. Christ's disciples, then and now, will struggle at times with the temptation to, to count on or to look to earthly things for their purpose and their security. But to do so, both will develop within them a distorted and tortured relationship with and attitude toward God's good creation, And it will reveal a heart that is no longer set on Christ. Of course, this shouldn't be too hard for us to understand, even if it's difficult for us to get it right. It is why we need the words of Christ here to be so clear and concise to warn us, followed by the command against anxiety that we will be looking at in the next few weeks. Should be no shock to know that we all have needs. None of us, even the most robust and skilled among us, none of us are completely self-sufficient. We all need food. We all need clothing. We all need shelter. Not to mention the myriad of emotional and psychological needs that rely on our being in community with other people. We have these needs, so we must labor to meet these needs directly, or we must labor to receive money so that we can procure what we need. Is it any wonder that man can so easily become confused about how their basic needs are met? A hungry man will naturally look either at the food or the means of obtaining it as his ultimate means of sustenance. The same would be true for his other needs. In this fallen and broken world, the natural inclination of man is to look to the creation for his salvation rather than to look to the God of creation. The natural man does not realize that when he does this, he makes himself a slave to the things of this earth. He makes himself a slave to those things that he looks to with hope. The Christian knows better. Our Savior has taught us better. We must recognize that it is folly to look to the created order to meet our needs, to ultimately and finally look to creation to meet our needs. Because we can, and we have been taught, to look to the Creator Himself. We have the ability, because of Christ, to go right to the source 
So Christ tells us we cannot serve both the things of this world and the creator of this world. It is impossible. And that is what our focus will be on this week. And then moving forward, we will see how this setting is the key to understanding this. So if we understand that we look to the creator himself and not to creation, that is the key for us to be able to understand how we can overcome anxiety. If we are slaves of the creator of all things, then we have no need to worry about how our needs will be met because everything in creation belongs to our God and we belong to our God. Thus, everything is ours in him. Riches are fleeting, and so too is any confidence that man places upon them. Yet God is steadfast and stable, and so too can be our confidence in his service. So I ask you to look with me again at our verse for this morning, Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The heart that treasures the things of this world will see its treasures fade away and decay. The eye that is not singularly focused on Christ leaves the man in complete darkness. That's been the messages for the past couple of weeks. Unless the messages of those two passages escape us, Christ clarified us, clarified for us that man can only serve one master. Anything that seemed indefinite or malleable in the first two clauses is defined by the third. To store up treasures on this earth is to set our eyes on earthly things and it is to serve worldly things. To store up treasures in heaven is to set our eyes on Christ and it is to serve God. We cannot do both. We cannot serve Two masters. Observe that Christ in this passage does not say that it is unadvisable. Jesus does not say that it will be difficult to serve two masters. He said that it's impossible. That is not to say that there won't be some who will try. I'm sure we can all think of people who have convinced themselves that they can serve God, that they can be a Christian and yet pursue with the utmost of their being worldly possessions and riches. Or we know some people who act as though they are serving God, that do mighty religious things, yet it is clear that they are really only pursuing the recognition, praise, and the wealth of this world. Jesus has a name for these kinds of people. He calls them hypocrites. They are foolish pretenders. As one commentator put it, attempts at divided loyalty loyalty, betray not partial commitment to discipleship, but deep-seated commitment to idolatry. Think about that. To not be wholly committed to serve Christ, to think that we have any ability to be divided in our focus, is not just a lesser form of discipleship. It is idolatry. Of course, there will be overlap in the actions that might be taken in the service of God and those that might be taken in the service of this world's riches and praises. And we have seen this before. Just think of a little bit earlier on in chapter 6. You can give to the poor, you can pray, and you can fast, either for the recognition and praise of men, 
And if you do it that way, you will receive in that action the fullness of your reward. Or you can give to the poor, you can pray and you can fast to give glory to God who is in heaven, who rewards those things done in secret and lay up treasures for yourself in heaven. Sometimes the actions itself make it clear if you are serving God or the things of this earth. And sometimes we have to look to the motives and the desires of the hearts. Well, the praise of men is an example of an earthly treasure. It is an example of that wealth, the riches, the money that functions as a rival master to God. It is a commodity. The praise of men, influence, notoriety, prestige. This is an example of worldly riches. The word that's translated in verse 24 as money is mammon. That carries the understanding of simply earthly gain. Those things that we obtain or we work for on this earth. Most naturally, yes, it does speak to riches and wealth. Yet it also can speak to those less tangible commodities that men so greatly hunger after. Men will often forsake money and wealth if they can get prestige, if they can get influence, if they can get the praise of men. And those types of earthly riches might tempt someone who is not so easily led astray by money or possessions. It is not always easy to see what kind of service is being given in a particular action. The real test to understand, are we serving God or money? The real test comes when we are in conflict between the two when there is an impasse, when we are being pulled in different directions. In those times, what we most desire reveals a lot about what is in our hearts. What we do in those times reveals a lot about what is in our hearts. Because when we are in conflict, our desires will drive us to despise anything that pulls us away from what we really want. If you don't understand, if you can't tell, am I pursuing God or the things of this world? When you can only do one or the other, and they're no longer able to run in parallel, do you get angry with God that he is holding you back from those worldly things that you want? Or do you despise that you even care about worldly things? And do you hate that it even gives you a moment's pause to let go of everything and follow Christ? Conflict is clarifying. Our desires and our choices when we meet conflict will reveal the truth of what is within our hearts. And yes, often this revelation is painful. And even if it is painful, we cannot afford to turn a blind eye and ignore it. We cannot simply ignore when we see the darkness in our hearts. We cannot turn away, focus on something else and find a new distraction. When we see that we are not fully devoted to Christ, we must engage. We must repent. We must turn to Christ anew in obedience. Well, if we are really going to understand the weight of Christ's words this morning in verse 24... We need to understand that he is not speaking in terms of an employer-employee relationship. He is speaking in the terms of slave owner and slave. Well, why does that matter? Well, an employee is free to serve as many employers as he has time. An employee is an independent contractor that can, that can give their effort, give their time to somebody, make an agreement with someone that I will serve you in this way for this amount of time for this amount of reward. 
So an employee still has control over themselves and can work for as many people as they desire without infringing upon the obligations to his employers. A slave is not simply under contract to render a specific service for his master for a specific portion of the day. A slave is the property of his master. He is at the beck and call of his master night and day. There is no time left for a slave that is his own. No time left for a slave where he can serve any other master. So whether someone is a slave by birth, by force, or by need, a slave is always bound to the will of his master. And a slave owner will not share what is his. And he will not abide a servant whose loyalty is divided. And this is the terminology that Christ would give us to get the full force of his teaching. Either we are slaves of God or we are slaves of wealth, of worldliness. Unless you think I'm overstating this passage, this is not an isolated teaching in scripture. Paul regularly spoke of believers as slaves of Christ. So I'd ask you to turn with me to Romans 6, verses 16 through 18. Luke, Acts, and then Romans. Chapter 6, 16 through 18. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the hearts to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you become slaves of righteousness. Paul recognized the force of Christ's teaching. He understood that there is no middle ground. As I'm aware that many of us become very uncomfortable the moment we start speaking in absolutes. Yet that is what our Lord gave us. And that is what I will spend myself in the proclamation of. In our, in our culture, we are taught to recoil at any thought, at any suggestion that we are not in complete autonomous control of our lives. Any thought that we are bound by anyone to anything. Yes, we may not want to be slaves to sin. I doubt anyone here and I doubt most people would say that they desire to be a slave to sin. But the truth is, many, even professing Christians, do not see the prospect of being a slave to God as much better. Many would simply prefer that God just set us free from sin and then left us as neutral. Many would rather be masters of their own domain than be slaves of Christ. So is it possible is it possible for a man ever to be his own master? Is it possible, what I'm asking, is it possible for a man to be neutral toward God? When God created man, he made him in his own image. God did not create man in the beginning neutral toward himself. Man was created to worship God by their existence, by their actions, and by their affections. Everything that it meant for Adam and Eve to be human in the Garden of Eden was a testament to their purpose on this earth. No, Adam and Eve were not neutral toward God. They were created to serve Him willingly and faithfully. It was in their very nature to treasure God to focus solely on God 
and to serve God. They were God's creation, and as such, God owned them. Of course, that all changed when they chose to reject God's rule and instead pursue that which was forbidden to them. When they gave their allegiance to something other than God. Sin corrupted everything so that mankind now, by nature, treasures, pursues, and serves the things of this world. Or sin did not enter the world and make those who were once servants of God somehow neutral toward him. That's not how it worked. It made them instantly and permanently enemies of God and slaves of sin. And that is the condition into which all of us are born. By grace through faith in Christ, Christians are freed from the bondage of sin but yet again made servants of Christ. Even then, when we are free from sin, we are not made neutral towards God. It makes us both child and slave. So beloved, we must learn this well, that no man has ever been or will ever be neutral toward God. Jesus said regarding God in this world, that we'll either hate the one and love the other, or we'll be devoted to one and despise the other. This is the message that James so boldly took up in his letter in response to the worldliness that division or that desire of the worldly things was causing among the people. It was causing them fighting and division. Turn with me to James 4, 2 through 4. Philemon, Hebrews... And then James chapter 4, looking at verses 2 to 4. James wrote, You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Service to the things of this world and service to God are directly in opposition to one another. To serve God is to reject the world. It is to reject the lusts of this world. It is to reject the possessions of this world. To serve the things of this world is to hate and despise God. It is to despise His authority over all of creation. And we see that played out in the world around us every day. No one is neutral towards God. They do not simply reject his commands. They hate him. They hate his authority. They hate his ability to determine who they are, what they are. They hate everything about him and his sovereign control over his creation. They even set up a month to celebrate their hatred of God. Hatred of God, which is as natural to sinful man as loving him was before the fall, causes men to deny the worship that he is due. It causes men to deny him the service that he is owed. It causes men even to deny, to acknowledge his existence and his creation. We turn back to Romans, we'll go to the first chapter of Romans Verses 18 through 23. This will be a familiar passage for most of us. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men 
who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So in their sin, they suppress what they know to be true. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Love of God or utter and absolute hatred of God. That is the choice we face. Beloved, this is important for us to come to terms with. We do not truly serve a master while we entertain a longing for the approval of our master's enemy. It is not true service to our master when we long for his enemies to think well of us, to love us, to care for us. That is as absurd as a thinking that a man can truly love a woman yet set his affections on another. (coughs) (coughs) We do not truly serve our master if we love what he hates or if we hate what he loves. You cannot love God and hate what he holds most dear nor can you hold dear what he so hotly hates. Of course, that no one is neutral toward God is a prominent theme in Scripture. And there are a number of different ways that this is described. One way that Scripture distinguishes those who serve God and those who serve this world is in the terms righteous and wicked. Psalm 1.6, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the wicked will perish. Proverbs 3.33, the Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Proverbs 15.29, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayers of the righteous. Malachi 3.18, then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Matthew 13, 47 through 50. The kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous. And the evil they will throw into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, another way that scripture distinguishes in this theme of one side and the other is referring to light and darkness, that either we are in the light or we are in darkness. John 3.19, this is the judgment that the light is coming to the world. And men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. John 8.12, again Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness will have the light of life. John 12, 46, I have come into the world as light, so whatever believes in me may not remain in darkness. 1 Peter 2, 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous lights. Ephesians 5.8, for at that time you were in darkness, but now you were in the light of the Lord. <coughs> Walk in, as children of light. And 1 John 1.5, this is the message we have heard from the hymn and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. 
Perhaps the most direct picture we are given concerning this truth is that of death and life. Whether or not we truly serve God is a matter of life and death. Either we are dead in our sins or we are raised to life in Christ. John 5.24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Colossians 2.13, And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, um, whom, of whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by children, or by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. To these descriptions, these distinctions, Scripture also adds references to the wheat and the tares in Matthew 12, to the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, to the lost and the found in Luke 15, and to the good and the bad tree in Matthew 7. There is no middle ground between these realities. There is no riding the fence. There is no neutrality. You are a slave. The only real question is, whom do you serve? I chose not to have a special sermon for Father's Day this morning, just as we chose not to do so on Mother's Day. However, the discussion of ultimate loyalty and service in our passage this morning provides a pretty good natural opportunity to discuss the ultimate goals and practices we employ as fathers in particular, but as parents in a more general sense. Whom do you serve in your house? What do your priorities and your goals as a father reveal about the loyalties of your hearts? What do your sacrifices and your labors on your children's behalf reveal about what matters most to you? <coughs> In the raising of your children, are you acting as a slave of Christ? Or are you acting as a slave of the things of this world? You may ask, how does a slave of Christ approach parenting? I invite you to turn with me to Deuteronomy 6, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy chapter 6. We'll be reading, starting in verse 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your hearts. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlet between your eyes. You shall write them on a doorpost of your house and on your gates. And if you look down, back down to verse 20. 
When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Remember, your son is asking you because you have spoken of the commands, the statutes, and the rules of our God as you went by your way, as you lied down, as you went on, as you sat in the home. So all throughout your life, you have talked to them. Your son asks you. Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed us signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh in all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, so that we might prepare, preserve us alive as we are to this day. And it will be a righteousness for us if we are careful to do all these commandments before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. If they had reason to teach their children about the exodus out of Egypt and their freedom from slavery there, much more so do we have reason to teach our children of the, our freedom from bondage and slavery to sin, that we might pursue and follow Christ, that we might obey his commands and give him service. <coughs> If you think this is just an Old Testament idea, turn with me to Ephesians 1, or sorry, Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. First and second Corinthians, Galatians, then Ephesians. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with the promise that it may go well with you and you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. <coughs> so a slave of Christ, their first priority for their children is to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. To that end, he sees all of life as an opportunity to teach them about the things of God, to celebrate the faithfulness of God, and to model joyful obedience to the radical call of Christ. The slave of Christ, first and foremost, prepares their children to be ready to stand before the throne of God at the end of this age or at the end of their life. Everything, everything serves that purpose. <coughs> Unless a father completely abdicates their role and abandons their God-given responsibility to protect and provide for their children, they will sacrifice much of their ease and their desires to give their children the best opportunity to succeed in whatever they deem as most important for them. None of us do this perfectly, either in fullness or frequency. Yet scripture teaches that even worldly fathers know how to give good gifts to their children. So I ask you fathers, what are you most concerned with instilling in your children? What are you most concerned to prepare them for, to give to them, to leave to them as an inheritance? Where is your hearts? What things do you most devote yourself to in the raising of your children? Are you most concerned with their earthly happiness or their holiness? Are you most worried that they won't fit in among their peers within society or that they would be strangers to Christ? What inheritance that you will leave for them most consumes your thoughts, your efforts, and your prayers? Will it be your legacy of faithfulness and joy in Christ or the riches of this world and the social influence that comes with it. 
Are you more concerned that they are ready and prepared to stand before a future employer or to stand before their creator? It is fine and good to want your children to be well-adjusted, well-educated, well-equipped, and financially prepared to thrive in this life. Scripture also teaches us that a man, a righteous man, leaves an inheritance for his children's children. (coughs) Success and money are not evil, but being their slave is. So fathers, whom do you serve in the raising of your children? Is it God or the riches of this world? By God's grace, I trust that we have dispelled any myth of neutrality towards God or any thought that we might be able to be divided in our attention and somehow give service both to God and to the things of this world. This is good and necessary both because it is true and it lies at the center of our overcoming what most likely is the most widely accepted and normalized sin among Christians. And that is anxiety. Make no mistake, anxiety is sinful. I don't want us to see this truth that we have, only see this truth we have discussed today. I want us to see the hope that is in this truth that we have discussed today. Each of these pictures that scripture gives us to describe the condition of the unbeliever and the unbeliever and the believer reveal that the changing from one to the other requires a work of God. There is nothing a dead man can do to make himself alive. A slave does not become free by simply wishing it. Someone must come and redeem him to purchase him for his own service. It is grace, the unmerited favor of God given to us by faith on account of the obedience and righteousness of Christ. Beloved, salvation is not simply a matter of making a slight correction in the direction you are walking. Salvation is a complete transfer from slavery to the things of this world to slavery to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Salvation is a radical work of God. So do not waste your life trying to obtain that which is vastly out of your reach. Do not spurn what is freely given so that you can try to earn what you will never obtain. If you are trying to get there by your own efforts, just simply stop. You can't get there from here. You can't get there that way. You weren't intended to try to get there that way. You only ever get there through Christ, by faith, or not at all. That is the hope in all of this. Christ warned us about the hard reality of our positions in this life. If we were left to our own strength and ability, we would be crushed. (coughs) Some of you remember that crushing feeling of trying to strive to earn God's favor, trying to fake service. Some of you may still be feeling it. It is a mercy to be told that you cannot get there that way. Turn instead to Christ who has accomplished everything on your behalf. He died to free you from slavery to a cruel and punishing master. And instead, make you a slave of the creator of the universe in whom there is no want or despair, but only hope and life. In this life, the Christian will struggle and battle against their flesh that continually seeks to pull them from Christ. 
We will sin in this life. We will not give perfect service to our God. However, it is not the quality of our service that determines our position before God. It is our position before Him that causes us to serve Him at all. It is His radical work in salvation that gives us a new nature that no longer looks to the things of this world as our greatest treasure, no longer seeks to earn enough here and now to satisfy the undying lusts of the flesh, but instead to look to God. Well, this teaching of our Lord, that we will either be servants of God or servants of this world, does not allow for the modern teaching that it, is, that it is possible for a Christian to be saved or a person to be a Christian and yet remain worldly. In the midst of this message of hope, there is still a warning. Scripture consistently shows that there are two realities for men. Yet there are many who would teach there are not two, but three. Many teach that there are unbelievers and that there are believers and that there are carnal believers or carnal Christians, a category of of Christian whose religion has not changed them. Someone who is Christian yet does not give service to God. Well, beloved, we recognize the reality of unbelievers and believers. There's overwhelming evidence in Scripture. But the idea of a carnal believer or a carnal Christian is a modern category given to describe those who have, not, who have at one time professed faith, yet continue to serve the things of this world as though nothing has changed. We must be sure of this, that Scripture, the teaching of Christ, and all of Scripture, beginning to end, does not allow for this third category of person. <coughs> Christ said in Matthew 12.30, Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. There is no neutrality. There is no Christian who does not serve. Faith does not simply make it possible for us to serve God. It causes us to serve God. Salvation does not make us neutral, does not free us to go to the right or to the left. It rescues us from bondage and places us in service. The nature of salvation that is in Christ, according to the grace of God, is so radical, it is so radical and miraculous, so powerful, that it does not affect a man, and leave him the same. You cannot experience the salvation in Christ, the indwelling of the Spirit of God, and remain as you were before. It is simply not possible. This is not a question of degrees, of how much change is necessary. It's a question of the fundamental nature of salvation in Christ. Again, nowhere does this imply or require that we will be perfect in this life. What this message from Christ does say is that everyone who is saved, everyone who is his disciple will serve God. It will be imperfect, feeble service, yet it will be service rendered out of the very nature of the believer. When Christ describes those characteristics that will mark his disciples, as he does throughout the Sermon on the Mounts, all these things that were radical then and they still sound radical to us today, he describes them in such a way that the only possible way that a person will live like this, only possible way a person will be like this, is if God has done a mighty work within them. What is unnatural and burdensome to the unbeliever is natural and joyful to the believer. Not because he has worked hard to get there, but because God has given him a new nature. The servitude that would be despised by the natural man becomes the delights of the new man in Christ. 
The yoke of this world is hard and it is burdensome. The yoke of our Lord is easy and his burden is light. Beloved, whom do you serve? Father, I pray that you would work within us, among us, through us. Father, I pray that you would remove conflicting desires and emotions, competing pulls on our lives. Father, draw us closer to Christ. Give us greater joy and desire to be pleasing and obedient to Him. Father, if there are areas in our lives that we are fooling ourselves into thinking we are following Christ, yet we are still serving the world, pray that you would bring some sort of conflict of interest into our lives. That we might see the ugliness, the stain that remains on us. We might repent of it and turn more fully and completely to Christ. Give us eyes to see how the world tempts us and calls to us and let us hate it. Let us hate the things of this world. Let us hate the motivations of this world. And let us give full, complete service and obedience to Christ in every area of our lives. Pray us in Jesus' name. Amen. We turn now to the Lord's table as we do each week. And this table, this this ordinance that we are given to remember the sacrifice of Christ is given to Christians. We need to be very clear about that. It is not given to those who pretend. It's not given to those who like to just think of themselves as generally Christian. It is given to those who are serving Christ, who have given themselves in devotion to Christ, who are walking in obedience to Christ. It's given to them as a means, a tangible reminder of what He has done for us, the price of rescuing us from the bondage of slavery to sin and bringing us into his loving, kind service. So for all who are in Christ, this is open for you. If the Spirit does not bring anything to your mind of conscience that would bid you to stay, bid you to deal with something else first, then I ask you to invite you to come to grab of the elements, and in just a moment, we will take of them together. We read in Matthew chapter 26, verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave, thank, and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Father, we thank you for this regular reminder that you have given us, this powerful display of our needing the body and the blood of Christ. Unless we drink his blood and eat his body, we have no part with him. Unless we claim his sacrifice as our own, unless his blood was shed for us, his body broken, there is no peace with God and we are yet in bondage to sin. We thank you for this. Pray that you would encourage us, strengthen our faith by these things.
that we might give more glad and faithful service to our King. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.